Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of ULI Toronto, and welcome to our special podcast series, In Case You Missed It. In this season, we delve deep into the ULI Toronto archives to present past speakers of our signature annual Fireside Chat, featuring key industry leaders and city builders from our region, their perspectives on the past and the future from the time we recorded, and their sage advice for emerging industry leaders. That these interviews were recorded as much as a decade ago adds a special dimension to these podcasts. They are already time capsules of a different era. In this episode, we feature Jane Pepino from Aird and Barrelets in 2021 and her longtime friend, Stephen Zackham, managing partner at Aird and Barrelets. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and good afternoon and welcome. As people start to trickle in, we're going to play ULI Toronto's new membership video as everyone gets settled. One of the staff members at ULI Toronto came to speak at Ryerson University, and I just thought, you know, this is a great way to network and to meet people and to learn more about my city as well, because they put on such great programming. To me, ULI has been a crucial part of my career development. Four years ago in Kensington Market, uh, there was a ULI walking tour where I met a senior city planner and uh, we developed a strong working relationship. That's a great thing about ULI, the opportunity to be uh, with like-minded people in, a, in the industry. I personally hired people from running into them at ULI and uh, led to a conversation and it grew into an opportunity to join our company. There are just so many opportunities for people of all ages to get involved as volunteers or just to attend the events and get involved. What's great about ULI is if there's that someone you've been wanting to meet and you haven't had the opportunity to do so, the roster of members is open. Take a look at who the members are. If that person's on the list, ask one of the ULI staff and they will make the introduction. Conversations that are happening, everything from the technology side of the business and incorporating uh, you know, new tech into development uh, and urban planning. That's rare to have that kind of um, an entity that can convene conversations from a whole variety of perspectives so that we can and a push and challenge each other to think a little differently about the solutions that might make a lot of sense. Now that I've been a part of ULI for seven years and that I volunteered for ULI, I, I hardly go by without going to an event and not knowing one person. And sometimes I actually find that um, there isn't enough time during the network portion of an event to talk to everybody that I know there. Join ULI to connect with people in the industry, to grow your career, and to give back. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Rob Spanier, president of the Spanier Group and former chair of ULI Toronto's management and advisory board. It is my distinct pleasure to kick off ULI Toronto's annual fireside chat and to welcome you all to this afternoon's program. Fireside chat with Jane Pepino in conversation with Steve Zakem. Incredibly, this year marks our 13th annual fireside chat event. Obviously, the format has been changed for the times we are in, but we are pleased to have you join us virtually. In the tradition of ULI Toronto's annual fireside chats, Jane Pepino will offer an unvarnished perspective of over four decades of real estate development and her journey as a pioneering legal giant in our industry and a candid one-on-one -on -one conversation with her colleague and longtime friend, Steve Zakem, managing partner at Aird and Burles. As a Toronto region-based organization, we acknowledge the land we are meeting on virtually. 
is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishwabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the, of the Credit. We are all treaty people. Many of us have come here as settlers, immigrants, and newcomers in this generation or generations past. We'd like to also acknowledge and honor those who came here involuntarily, particularly those who are descended from those brought here through enslavement. To better understand the meaning behind land acknowledgement, I recommend a program that ULI hosted with Shared Path over this past summer. 13,000 years of indigenous history in the GTA and why it matters to planning and development, and more recently, whose land and whose law. The links will be both chatted in the, uh, posted in the chat. So before we get started, a few housekeeping items. One, everyone will be automatically muted throughout the session to ensure, ensure uh, any audio interference. Closed captioning is available. There might be a slight delay and it might not be 100% accurate. So please be patient. If you have any questions, please use the Q&A function or upvote questions by presenting the thumbs up button. So during the Q&A session, I'll be choosing from those questions. So make sure to get those in. This is a recorded session. The recording will be sent to you after the session. And finally, if you want to take the conversation online, please tag us with the handle at ULI Toronto or with the hashtag ask great questions. Today's event and all other ULI programming would not be possible without the support of our annual sponsors. I'd like to say a major thank you to all of them for their support. Now more than ever, ULI Toronto relies on the support of our sponsors who allow us to put on the quality programming we do and drive our mission to shape the future of the built environment for transformative impact in communities worldwide. So to all of them, we say thank you. So with much to cover, it is my pleasure to introduce Steve Zakem as this year's interviewer of our guest, Jane Pepino. Steve is widely recognized as an expert in municipal planning. His uses, uh, he uses his deep understanding of the real estate market and strong interpersonal skills to guide clients through complex municipal regulations and multiple layers of city officials, staff, and politicians. Steve is the firm's managing partner and a member of the Municipal and Land Planning Group. His municipal practice is primarily devoted to land use planning matters involving residential, commercial, and industrial properties. He advises a broad range of private and public sector clients on practical solutions that are suited to their tolerance for risk and appetite for opportunity. Steve has appeared before local municipal planning bodies and has extensive experience in appearing before the Local Planning Appeal Tribunal, formerly the Ontario Municipal Board. He has been a member of the executive committee since 2011. While Steve is Jane's colleague and longtime friend and such, I believe he is the perfect person to facilitate such an intriguing conversation. Before I hand it over to Steve, I wanna thank Jane personally for agreeing to do this. I've known Jane professionally for over 10 years now. And I'm proud to say that I am the one who convinced Jane to join ULI Toronto as part of our advisory board many years ago. I was also tasked to make the ask to have Jane be this year's Fireside Chat featured guest. While Jane says no to many people, I am humbled that once again, she agreed to my request with very little pushback. If you've ever sat across from Jane on any matter, you would know what I mean by pushback. Jane, your knowledge and experience in the industry is unparalleled, but it is your commitment and care for our industry and our community that I admire most. I am truly looking forward to sitting back and enjoying this moment today. Over to you, Steve. Thanks very much, Rob, for that kind introduction and good afternoon, everyone. I want to thank ULI for putting on this event each year and for inviting us to do what I understand will be the first ever virtual ULI fire chat, fireside chat. 
Erden Burles is a proud member of ULI and a number of our colleagues are joining you today for this event. It's an honor for me to facilitate this conversation with Jane. Simply put, there's no more recognizable name in municipal law than Jane Papino, who founded the Erden Burles Municipal Land Use Planning Group in 1982. Jane's experience of more than 45 years means there's little she hasn't seen before and her strategic and flexible approach puts her clients on the best possible footing to face the factors that are beyond their control. Jane has been widely recognized for her contribution to healthcare governance, public service, volunteer work, and her community involvement generally. She is founder of the firm's municipal and land use planning group, which now has 21 lawyers and four planners. Her practice includes providing advice on all aspects of the statutory scheme for planning, zoning, and land development throughout Ontario as well as on a broad range of municipal and provincial licensing and other regulatory matter, matters. She advises governments, landowners, lenders, as well as uh, community groups, ratepayers associations. Jane's clients include uh, regional governments as well as local government agencies, as well as uh, large development corporations and small landowners. She regularly appears before various decision-making bodies that control land development, including planning committees and councils, conservation authorities, and LPAT, or the OMB LPAT, or uh, Land Tribunals of Ontario, whatever it's called today, and the courts. By way of background on our relationship, Jane took a chance on me 28 years ago and hired me as an associate to Ed Erdogan Burles, and since that time, she has trained and mentored me for my entire career, and in the process has become a dear friend. Jane has been the single most important and positive influence in my professional development. I'm excited to facilitate this opportunity for you to learn a little bit more about Jane. There's so much ground we could cover in what is truly an extraordinary life and career with still some more chapters to be written. So Jane, we're not writing you off yet. Um, Jane, I wanna start with um, a little bit of uh, personal information. Uh, you, uh, you were born in London, Ontario, as the eldest of three children with two younger brothers. Your father was an engineer who obtained his PhD and had a number of inventions and patents to his name. Your mother was a physiotherapist who continued to work while raising the three of you. Uh, your parents divorced when you were in grade 13. Uh, and this was also during the 1960s, which was a time of great social upheaval. How did your parents divorce and when it happened shape you as a person? Um, I think it made me more independent and recognizing um, that I was having to forge a slightly, in those days, non-traditional path for myself. Divorce was quite rare. Um, the other thing was that it, I think, made uh, underscored the importance of staying in touch with family and trying to build a, a strong family if possible. But most importantly, I think I saw my mother fend for herself in a way that um, was a continuation, but really deepened her commitment to not just her profession, which she loved and she was very good at, but also to volunteer work. And so from that perspective, I saw her really make a life for herself as an individual raising, in that case, my two brothers. I was off to university at that point. So uh, some good examples, and you, there's always a silver lining, things to learn from bad situations. And you did uh, two years of undergrad at Vic College of U at U of T, mm -hmm. and then entered law school, uh, Osgoode Hall Law School, at the age of, I believe, nineteen. Right. 
Uh, and that's when Osgood Hall was actually at Osgood Hall, downtown right. Toronto, right? That's right. There were dinosaurs wandering the grounds. Right. The cattle gates, as, they, uh, right. as the urban legend goes. Uh, you graduated in 1970 from law school. Uh, why did you choose to go to law school? What, what drove you to go to law school? It was a combination of um, understanding, again, from my mother that a, a general BA, even an honors BA, wasn't going to necessarily set me on a path. And um, although I enjoyed my English um, studies very much, I just thought I wanted to have something that was specific. And uh, it was almost on a whim that I applied to law school with a friend but it also had a number of things that were really intriguing to me. There was the whole issue of advocacy. There was the issue that you could learn how to become a better citizen. There was an issue that you could help people in whatever role you were taking. And I also thought, well, it's worth a flyer. Um, if I really like it, great. And if I don't, it's pretty good general education that I could apply elsewhere. And um, at this time, you were, you were, um... I'm sure as a, as, as a, uh, a woman in law school, uh, there weren't as many as there are today. Uh, I guess I think today it's more than 50% of, of all students in law school are women. Uh, back in the day when you uh, went to Osgood, how many, how many students were there in your class? And what, uh, what kind of challenges did, uh, did, did you face uh, being a woman in, in what was then a male dominated uh, uh, class? Well, there were over 300 in the the first year, you know, the, the old thing, uh, the first day they sat us down and said, look to your left, look to your right, one of you won't be here next year, and that turned out to be true. Uh, there were 10 women originally registered, and within a couple of months, someone, one of the women transferred out to UBC, and it was strange. Um, there were 10 women in my year, and 10 the year before that, and 10 the year before that, but boy, nobody would acknowledge that there perhaps was a quota on women being admitted. Um, some of the challenges included classmates who came right up to me and said, you don't deserve to be here. All you're going to do is um, go and have a family and uh, you're not going to use it, use your degree. And we have a friend who should have come with us. We planned since high school that the four of us would all be in law school and he didn't make it and you've got his place. So there was that. And I think there was also um, because it was so unusual and uh, sexual harassment was, you know, quite common and accepted. There were people just hitting on you in one way or another. They either didn't want you there or they didn't want you there uh, just as a, a classmate. That said, I made some wonderful friends who were very supportive, who've remained friends to this day. So it was what it was. And, um, uh, sorry. Um, the, you, you then went on and did your, after you graduated from law school, you went and did your master's of law at University of Texas. Yes. How did you, how did you get to, how did you, how did you get to University of Texas? Yeah, fair, fair question. I was really, really interested by the time I graduated um, in advocacy and I knew I was going to be a litigator. And one of the burgeoning areas of law, <laughs> this is a sign of how long ago it was, was the whole issue of foreseeability and torts. And, um, the person who had written the book and was doing the research and that was a guy named Paige Keaton, who was the Dean at the University of Texas Law School, whose brother at the same time was the Dean of Harvard Law School. So I applied, again, not on a whim, but just to say, well, it was more a flyer than a win. 
and I got accepted. And so I was able to study with Paige Keaton and I did my thesis and I came back and I never did that area of law again, but that's a whole <laughs> different story. It's all right, can never learn too much. Uh, and then you were called to the bar in 1973. And I wanted just to share our viewers, I'm, uh, I'm gonna pass forward here for really soon, but uh, I, I, think, uh, I think the early part of your career is, is important and interesting. Um, you were called to the bar in, in, in uh, 1973 mm -hmm. uh, and then went into uh, practice. And what, um, uh, and, and uh, when you went into practice, did you immediately, uh, where did you article and, and, and how, did you, how did your articling experience draw you towards land use planning law? I was articling for a firm called Thompson Rogers, which at that point had a very strong litigation department. And one of the, uh, there were a couple of senior lawyers there who were very active in the area that I was very interested in, medical malpractice, foreseeability, negligence. And, but Thompson Rogers as any law firms required to do, put students through rotation. And so I got put into the municipal rotation. I went, oh, geez, I don't know what that is. I hadn't taken municipal law, I hadn't taken planning law. There were very few courses that were even offered in those days. So whatever was on offer, I wasn't interested in. But I was, I was assigned to work with um, Robert McCauley. That's Bob McCauley, the lawyer, not his nephew, the planner. And he had just left government as one of the really first and pioneering ministers of municipal affairs and housing. And he was an extraordinary individual and just basically threw me in. You know, I was just in the deep end. I had never read the planning act. I didn't know there was a planning act and a municipal board act and a municipal act. So it was very much learning as I went, but I loved it. It was all the litigation I wanted, all the advocacy I wanted, really important um, public policy issues wrapped up in politics. It was just made for me. And so I never left the rotation. I spent all the rest of my articles doing that with Bob McCauley and the, and the department that he had put together. And uh, I was the only, only student hired back. Uh, within four months of being hired back after bar ads, however, my senior, a, a man named Bob Jarvis, who just died about a year and a half ago, he and three others announced they were leaving Thompson Rogers to set up their own boutique firm and they invited me to go with them. And I kind of took a deep breath and thought, well, I've tied my star to that wagon. And so I went with them. And the firm was known as uh, Jarvis Blot. Fair Pepino. And I had one half of 1%, but I was on the letterhead. All right. Um, in, in 1974, you married Jamie or James Pearson, who, who uh, unfortunately passed away this past November. You have three wonderful children, uh, Drew, Blaine, and Tori, who I yeah. believe might be even listening today. And if they are, I, I say hello. Um, one of my favorite stories is around the announcement of the birth of Drew at a time when uh, these announcements were routinely published in the paper. And it says a lot about the time times you were living through. Could you just yeah. tell that, relay that story to, uh, to her? 1978, um, my, my first child, Drew, was born and I wanted to put in the standard birth announcement, but I had kept my own name. And the Globe and Mail couldn't cope with that. They couldn't cope with having, you know, Pearson and Pepino in the same. 
So I, you know, thankfully I was in those days, you're in hospital for five days. So I had a lot of time to spend on the phone with these people. And we ended up sawing it off where they allowed us how they would put my name in with my husband's, but they used small font for my name. So the bold font was Pearson. And then I had a little tiny Pepino after that. Um, we were able to announce Drew's birth and 19 months later when his sister was born and I went back to the globe, they had fixed their problem. There was no issue about having double names and having it in the same degree of font. Right. So uh, I took that as a tiny, tiny, tiny step ahead. Great. Um, Canada's national newspaper had come, had, <laughs> had come uh, to adulthood. Yeah. That's great. Um, and after you, uh, after you uh, joined the firm, um, or you're, you started your own firm, uh, and, and, and you got married, uh, there's, a, there's a funny story about the, uh, the letterhead. At the time, oh. at the, at the time of, uh, uh, people, people your age and mine will remember a time when all the lawyers, or the partners at least, were listed on letterhead. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you, you, you were on the letterhead. You want to just tell that, that story. I, I, I quite like that one too. After, after I became engaged and announced to my partners um, that I was getting married in a month's time, they kind of said, oh, congratulations, that's wonderful. What are you going to call yourself? Because it was also very traditional that women would take their husband's name. And I said, well, I, I thought I'd keep my own name. They said, oh, thank God, we just ordered 10,000 sheets of letterhead. So I, I was able to satisfy their need as well as my own. That's great. Uh, and of course, that was a day when you ordered letterhead uh, in, in batches of, of, of the thousands as well. Yeah. Um, so if, uh, as if a Bay Street practice and three children were not enough, you've always been involved in public, public service, uh, volunteerism throughout your career, and certainly as long as I've known you. How did you get in, first get involved in, 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 in public service um, uh, as, a, as a young lawyer? I had always been active in student politics and the like and was a bit of a joiner from that perspective. But when I was um, just starting out in about 1970, I'm trying to re even remember. Bottom line is uh, Roy McMurtry was the attorney general at that time. And Roy, as people who know him, knew, know him uh, was a feminist. He'd appointed Rosie Abella to the courts when she was pregnant and 35 or 36 years old. And I had met Roy through one of my classmates who was articling with him. And um, he appointed me to the Human Rights Commission in 1980. And that was really interesting for me because it was my first sort of grown up appointment and it was at a time when issues of sexual harassment, of gender being a protected, um, gender and sex being a protected um, category under the act were just starting to come into play. So that got me started uh, in an order and council appointment. And then within two years of that, there had been a really bad summer where there'd been a lot of police violence and, and tension with the black community in, in Toronto. And so Roy called and asked whether I would consider becoming a member of the Metropolitan Toronto Commissioners of Police. And he said to me, you know, you'd be the first woman. And I said, well, you know, that's okay. That's not 
I'm used to that kind of. And so we talked it through and, and he pointed to the fact that I had been in the, on the Human Rights Commission, one of the founding members of the Race Relation Division. And it was clear to me that, that he wanted to make not only a change, but also symbolize the commitment and the direction. So I said yes, and it was a really wonderful experience. I learned a ton. It was trying at times. There were really difficult issues, but it was just, it felt like I was able to make a, a small contribution. And through that, then we had a terrible summer where um, Paul Bernardo, we now know, was the Scarborough rapist, and Paul Godfrey, who was chair of Metro, of Metro Toronto at that point, asked me as a fellow member of the, of the police commission to undertake a, a public inquiry um, and advisory role into reporting on ways to avoid and, and deal with violence against women and children. And that then led me into other things as well. So I was just lucky. I was in the right place at the right time when somebody asked. And one of the things I've learned over my life is you've got to be willing to say yes when those things occur because wonderful doors can open. Does, did, did, does your involvement in one of in one particular organization or uh, stand out as as among among the others? I know that's a tough question, but uh... I had sort of parallel paths, but they but they did join up. One path was to speak on behalf of and be an advocate for women, children, and from that perspective into more marginalized groups. Although I, because. I'm only a woman and I'm not in other marginalized groups. I didn't feel comfortable necessarily speaking for those groups, but rather trying to um, open a dialogue. Parallel to that, um, the whole issue of safety and health led me into being invited to sit on the board of Women's College Hospital. And I've chaired that place twice and I've been a longtime board member. It is a passion of mine. And just the whole issue of women's health, women's health research, um, service to women, not only in, in providing care, but also ensuring that women become leaders in medical care and medical research, simply because that changes the dialogue and that changes the understanding. And also, I know that women constantly are pushing for the necessary public policy changes to make things better for themselves and those around them. So all of those, those things um, have been very important to me and they're both thematic but I think I'd have to say that women's college was, has been it for me as one of the biggest things. And, uh, and uh, I was fortunate to be at the firm when you were going through that. And it was a very interesting time. I remember it was during the Harris government and the various cutbacks and restructuring of, of, the, of, of many of the hospitals. Um, and uh, you served two terms. You can only serve two terms as chair of the board. And then of course you came back later and served two more terms. Um, and during that process, as I recall, uh, women's college was um, merged with or uh, reorganized together with Sunnybrook. And then, uh, and then, can you just describe a bit of what happened, the arc of yeah. what happened, and that led to what is now a brand new right. hospital well, building, and an, and an, it's still an independent institution. Well, in fact, it was worse than that. Originally, women's college was supposed to be closed. And we, we pushed, we pushed really hard. There were demonstrations on the lawn of Queens Park. There were petitions. I worked the back rooms. We started litigation um, and 
in order to, to settle the litigation three and a half years in, uh, it was acknowledged that we would remain a hospital under the Hospital Act. We would be partnered with Sunnybrook and became Sunnybrook and Women's, but would, we would remain um, whole and in de not independent, but, but identifiable. So it was never, I never accepted the word merger because to me merger means the two things come together and the original parts disappear. It was always Sunnybrook and Women's. Um, it was a difficult time because the cultures were very different and the, the, the mandates were different in many ways. There was much similarity as well. But suffice to say that um, by the time I left the board of Sunnybrook and Women's, there was a new group of women behind me and they worked very hard over the next four or five years to secure a commitment from the then opposition party to put independence for women's college into their, their political platform. And Dalton McGinney got elected and Dalton McGinney followed, McGinney followed through on his promise to allow women's college pure independence. That's when I went back to help them plan a new building um, and to get it reset um, after uh, that building was done. So um, it was a bit of a retread, but it was lovely to be there when, when, when she rose like a phoenix from the ashes. That's right. It was a long process too. Yeah. Um, so uh, just let, just want to talk about what I'm sure many people on the call are interested in is, is, is some, some questions about the development industry. Um, you've seen a lot of changes in the course of 45 plus years. Um, yeah, what are some of the more profound ones that you've seen, um, good and bad? I think over the arc of that time, and you were kind enough, I'm using air quotes here to point out that my 45 years have spanned six different decades. Um, right. We've gone from, from basically very few rules, just, you know, official plans that were 12 pages and a map. Uh, and a lot of, when I first started, a lot of municipalities, certainly north of Highway 9, didn't even have official plans. So we've gone from, from that where the whole approach by, the, by some developers was how to kind of make those few rules work for them and work their way around because there wasn't a lot of regulation, to now where I think there's far too much regulation. My, my operating mandate or, or mantra rather is that a pendulum never rests in the middle. It's always swinging too far in one direction or the other. I think we didn't have enough control in the early days. I mean, for example, it wasn't until probably the late 70s, early 80s that official plans actually recognized things like rivers and ravines. That was always under the jurisdiction of the conservation authorities after uh, Hurricane Hazel. So it was important, I think, to bring those things together and to start to look at things much more holistically. But today, I, I, you know, challenge anyone to pick up 569-2013 and put a pin through any particular clause and tell me within 40 seconds what it means. It is, it's like there's some sort of, of, of sedimentary accretion of regulation and exception and cross-referencing. Nothing is simple. We spend time now helping clients not try to get around the rules, but try to figure out how to at least adhere to the rules. And the process has become utterly unwieldy. Um, the city of Toronto has both not enough people to do the work 
but also too many too many um, regulations and things to go processes to go through that you don't need that same number of people. I don't know how the reset button's going to be pushed, however. I mean, some people point to British Columbia, well, any other province that doesn't have an Ontario Municipal Board or an LPAD or a T-Lab. Uh, they just deal with the municipality. And I suppose that is the ideal case because everybody has to act like a grown-up then and take responsibility and, and co cooperate and uh, reach consensus. I don't know how we would transition from where we are at the moment through to that, and I'm not sure that's Nirvana either. Somewhere in between, uh, I think there has to be an, op an opportunity to push a number of reset buttons with the approaches. I think that having broad policy, policy led from the provincial level is fundamentally important because you push down in one municipality, it's going to pop up in another. We do have regional transportation. We absolutely have to look at, at hard infrastructure. Just think of the York-Durham service, um, servicing scheme and, the, and the, the big pipe. That was around 25, 30 years ago. And now it's coming back into play again to allow growth to continue in Simcoe. So there are these things that absolutely have to be done up at the top level, but there's such an accretion down below that there's... Um, I'm hoping the pendulum starts to reverse direction. Yeah, I'm interested in I'm interested in in, in the course of my 30, 30 year career. One of the things that that really struck me as I was learning about planning and and practicing was the you know we call it land use planning, and yet I felt that planning was was always reactive. Yes, there wasn't a lot of planning yes. actually going on, and in in many respects, the development industry lead planning in Ontario, lead certification is one example that springs to mind. Uh, uh, you know, the development of, 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 of uh, townhouses and rear lanes and those sorts of things, the, the back to the future kind of thing. But so I think the development industry has been very innovative and actually forward thinking. What's your, what's your view on the, the connection between um, uh, public policy and private development. I'm thinking of things like rent control, affordable housing, uh, the green belt, the ORM. That it is, there's always been that tension. What you've got some comments on on that in the in the course of your career? Right. I think things like the green belt and the Oak Ridge's Moraine, as as two examples, were necessary because there is always, and certainly back then, not so much now, but back then. People said, it's my land, I can do what I want with it, back off. And the burgeoning understanding from the Crombie Commission is one, as one good example, that everything is linked to everything else as far as certain, um, certainly environmental systems go, um, was, was fundamentally important. And no, no, ind no individual municipality could do it. And there were certain attitude among some of the developers that they didn't care and they didn't have to anyway, you can't make me. So they had to be made. Um, the other thing, however, is that to your point, I think that developers have taken a tremendous lead, not only the examples that you've um, mentioned, but for example, um, mass timber uh, construction and getting the, the building code changed, reduced parking standards, 
in order they, you know, I remember going 15 years ago and saying at, at a hearing, you can spit and hit a subway. Why are we being, why is my client being asked to provide 1.25 or 1.4 parking spaces? So those were things where the industry drove what I think is now accepted wisdom. Um, and with respect to rent controls, you know, Mike Harris brought rent controls in for what was a good reason at that point, both political and I think policy, frankly. And what our industry has been able to do is to make the best of it. There are now, there is now a niche within the industry who looks at long-term cash flow can be capitalized 25, 30, 35 years out as being a really good thing. Think about the income trusts and all those sorts of things. And with the stability of knowing um, that rents will be protected and projected, there's some people who are doing very well by that right now. I acknowledge it's not affordable housing. And, and, I, and I also acknowledge that today we're all grappling with the implications for the move to inclusionary zoning on a mandated mandatory basis. I don't think that's necessarily going to end well, but um, I think if people can share their interests, but also understand where the, the checkpoints are and the pinch points and the pain points for the industry and what the, it is that they can and can't do, hopefully we'll be able to work something through. So all of which goes to say, it's politics and public policy is the water that this industry swims in. We breathe it every day and maybe like a fish, we don't even notice that we're doing it. Intricately linked. And I do see it as a two-way two street as well, because this industry is nothing but innovative. And if we need to get change to make sense, then things like build, like ULI, like CUI, pinpoint it and start to, and start to socialize it with government. And you mentioned rent controls. You mentioned Mike Harris. You you meant to say Bill Davis, uh, I think, <laughs> brought brought it in. Not not Mike Harris. Mike oh, Harris God. actually, Mike Harris loosened, of course, loosened rent some. Control. But but that loosened was some. to me that was the reset. That was the yeah. reset for yeah. for people being able to actually, under certain circumstances, make a go of it. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and we've seen we've seen in the past number of years substantial amounts of of rental housing being built in in. Uh, for years, there was nothing built. For 30 years, nothing was built. And more recently, you've, you're seeing a lot of it, uh, including some projects you, I know you worked on, um, not too far from where I live, uh, which was supposed to originally be- And they're company. beautiful buildings, Stephen, beautiful right. buildings. They're very nice. Yeah. Um, um, I've, got, I've got just a, a few more questions. So if people have uh, if people have questions for Jane, this, you, you don't often get a chance. Most of you are questioned by her. Uh, but if you've got questions, please put them in the chat and uh, and we'll take them up. Um, I know, Jane, from, from speaking to you, uh, that you have been approached in the past uh, to run for public office. Uh, you're, you're, you, have, you, have, uh, you were a red Tory, as they said in the day, a, a Bill Davis uh, Tory. You've been asked to run. You've been asked to apply to be a judge. Uh, why have you... Uh, um, not uh, followed through on either of those opportunities? Well, my, my flip answer, particularly with respect to municipal politics and running for mayor of the city of Toronto is, do I look like a woman with a death wish? Um, truly, however, 
I, and I did, I did think about it very seriously from time to time because it's an alluring life. I mean, it's just got, there's a draw. Um, from a public policy perspective, I do believe still that there's an opportunity to influence policy from the outside. It's like, you know, you can just keep at people and at people and you're not constrained by party politics or by um, having to meet an election process. So you have an opportunity, I think, to be more able to base actions and beliefs and all of that on values and on and on beliefs. You're not constrained. And secondly, with respect to the judge, <laughs> if I had ever seen a really bad cross-examination, I would have kind of gone, oh, that wasn't very good. Here, let me ask some questions. <laughs> I just, I love, I love what I do so much. I love the hearings. I love the negotiations. I love the mediations. I love all of that. I didn't want to leave it behind. So simple, but I was being pretty self-indulgent too. I think you have, you, you had the right to. Um, do you have any, uh, any uh, sort of advice or, or parting comments for people with respect to the industry in general, um, the development industry, the the planning yep. plan, planning community. Any you sort of thought, any sort of any sort of profound yeah. thoughts from a career of, of, of so, that spanned so 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 many years. I think that although our industry has always dealt with quote community, that's generally in the past meant ratepayer groups. My sense is that. One of the things we're going to need to do, and we've already started to do in, in, I believe, a fairly obvious way, is to embrace ESG, the environment, social, and governance issues, and to ensure that we are also hitting, as part of environmental, the whole matter of uh, the climate change and the crisis in sustainability. Um, that's, that's social sustainability for sure, but when you just look at the sinkholes that are opening up, the fact that Collingwood put in an, an ICBL a couple of weeks ago because they say, they say, and I'm sure it's more nuanced than that, that they can't service uh, development with water anymore. Those are challenges that are real for the, for the industry. And unless we start to get out ahead of those things and build that sort of stuff into our planning, I don't think that the industry is going to be able to maximize its impact and maximize its return. And as part of that, the whole issue of community, I think, is getting much more granular. Uh, we're now talking about the 15-minute city. We're talking about uh, uh, MTSAs and, and intensification and transit and, frankly, equity, because we don't want to have neighborhoods or municipalities hollowed out because people can't live there. We don't want neighborhoods left any longer that are food deserts. And now with COVID, we've discovered that Jane Finch is not only a food desert, it's a pharmacy desert. That's not right. And, and unless, and, and let me put it differently, let me put my developer hat on, there are opportunities in that. It's not just to do the right thing, um, but doing the right thing can, can be a good thing for everyone concerned, including dropping to the bottom line. You think of just trying to intensify the towers in the park. Very common that people are doing it now. It makes great sense. Uh, and there's a good return in it. So 
I think those are the things we're going to have to start to be thinking about much more is granularity um, of our planning and responding to ESG initiatives uh, and continuing to lead to get public policy and those bloody regulations to recognize that there have to be changes and that there has to be the ability to be far more nimble than I think the process is at the moment. I'm, I'm really praying that in the next decade, the pendulum's gonna swing back a little bit into, um, into making things easier and more certain. And just to bring it full circle to, um, to the start of our conversation about a, a, you know, a young woman go, going into law school and uh, when, when it wasn't common and the development industry, one thinks of it as, as sort of a, um, you know, construction, you think of, you think of it as a, as a, as a man's game, but, uh, you know, I know the, the department you've built here at the firm has 21 lawyers in it, 10 of them are women, 11 of us are, are men. Um, I think of Julie DeLorenzo and Lucy Stocco and other uh, uh, women leading in the development industry. And, and when I look around, I see that the development industry is actually quite, um, seems, seems to be quite open to and welcoming of, of, of women. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, and just think, just think of the membership video that was shown. There was Katarina Sliwa, there was uh, um, Emma West, who's got a senior role at ULI. Absolutely. Um, I think this industry now, I remember going to meetings with guys who were wearing, they just come from the field because they were checking on their subdivision. And that a lot of the, the wonderful, big, powerful firms now were started 45 years ago by people who had a pickup truck and, you know, were pouring concrete. Um, I think now it's much more knowledge-based business, much more sophisticated. Uh, planners are, are integral now to every big development and development corporation. And women are taking natural roles in that. We care about where we live and how our families live. And um, I think the industry is much more progressive than it was and uh, much more sophisticated. So I'm very comfortable now. I don't have to fight any battles any longer the way I did 45 years ago. I was called a lawyerette in my second year of practice. That cut quick. Yeah. Nobody would do that now. They wouldn't even think about it. So um, you live not, to your, not, not, to, not to your face anyway. <laughs> Things happen, you know. Jane, Jane, I, I, I appreciate you asking me to 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 be the interviewer today. It's always a pleasure, and it's great to see you again. Uh, Rob, I'll turn it over to you, and uh, thanks again to ULI for for giving me and Jane this opportunity. Yeah, this was amazing, and thank you both for incredible conversation, dialogue, and really just you know chatting with uh, 164 of your uh, closest friends. <laughs> Um, before I get into the questions, and there are a lot of them, and again, please don't forget to upvote your questions because they go to the top. I, I want to sort of send out a special note to you, Jane from Blaine Pearson. Not a question, but just wanted to say that all three of us kids are watching and want you to know we are so proud of you. You've been an endlessly inspiring role model to us all. Thank you. We love you. Um, not, all, not to mention, that's not the only one. You know, there are so many notes here that are just saying thank you, a sincere thank you for being the incredible human I know you to be. I have learned so much from you. Uh, and so it's so amazing to hear, you know, people don't have this opportunity to really hear the real Jane Papino because they often walk into the room and say, uh-oh, Jane's on the <laughs> other side. 
But um, a couple of questions that have been uploaded to the top from Eileen Costello. Hello, partner. You just spoke about the challenge of hitting the reset button to address the complexity of the current planning regime. Based on your experience and knowledge, if you had to make three recommendations to change the process, political, municipal, or otherwise, today, what would those be? Thanks, Jane. Oh, boy. Eileen, you're always known for those really tough questions. I think one of the things would be to seriously, and I know this is impossible. I'm, I'm hoping you're allowing me to dream in technicolor. Simplify the Planning Act. Get it down to, you know, section 14 a b and c instead of point one i'm i'm very serious about that it is it is so dense now that it is hard for people to find their way through it and we spend more time on trying to understand what the goal is than actually working through it um i think next i would um hopefully there's something called uh, keys to cons or concept to keys that the city of toronto is getting started on i just hope that that gets properly resourced and properly staffed and gets actually able to break through the political um uh, concrete that sometimes stands in the way of any sort of meaningful change uh, and i guess perhaps the follow the final thing is that i don't know what we do about councils you know we've got the we they splits we've got We've got municipalities now that are struggling with COVID. I, I full sympathy, but as you start to see the inability of a council to work collectively to a, an outcome on, I don't care what it is. I don't care whether it's transit or development charges or EDCs, you name it, there's always a fight. And if in fact the goal of council is to lead, we're not seeing that in a way that true leadership, I think, that would serve the public and serve the public interest, which includes, of course, getting the right kind of development done properly uh, is being served. Now, that's my technicolor list. I don't know how to implement any of those, Eileen. I'll leave that to you. Here's another great question. You know, thinking back on all your wins and accomplishments, can you recall a loss which you gained knowledge experience that assisted you going forward? I can remember you and I working together on a project outside of Toronto where we were trying to head down the path of a win, but we ultimately didn't get the win. It may not have been the process, it may have been the development, but what's what's a great loss that you can think of to share with the audience? Well, you know, it's interesting. It was when Stephen and I first got together. Um, it was the very first hearing of Price Club Costco, and we were acting for, I was acting for Loblaws, and about halfway through the hearing, hired Stephen, who was there on behalf of another uh, another party. Um, and in theory, we quote lost end quote in that uh, the Costco was um, permitted to proceed. But our mandate on behalf of our client back then 20, 25 years ago was to see if we could even the playing field. At that point, Costco co could come in and they were buying industrial land. They were paying industrial taxes. Um, they didn't have, they could go anywhere they wanted because um, they didn't have to go constrained into a shopping center or, or the like. And people like the standard retailers were going, this isn't fair. I mean, we're happy to compete in the market, but we can't compete when they're paying 10 cents on the dollar for the land and 20 cents on the dollar for the taxes. And, 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 and you can all imagine. So it was a hard fought battle. We went through 
months. We did, I think, the first only, uh, the first trans-provincial uh, tour, and everybody, the board included, flew out to Vancouver to see one that was actually operating because they hadn't entered Ontario yet. And we, quote, lost. And what's more, there were some costs awarded, not only against uh, my client, but also against Costco, uh, because uh, it was described as being a knock them down, drag them out battle. And the municipality was sort of in between getting trampled was the theory of, of the, cost the uh, cost award. But it changed everything. It changed municipalities' understanding of what that particular retailer was like. It changed um, the, the taxation paradigm. It changed the zoning paradigm. It leveled the playing field. So that was a loss, but it shows the impact that that process has on public policy. And it got me a job. <laughs> and he did it really well. He had fun. Next question. Yeah. That's good. I'm going to paraphrase this next question, um, but you talked a lot about advice uh, and throughout your conversation with Steve. But uh, I think one of the questions that I, I was going to ask you myself was, you know, if you're just starting out. What advice would you give yourself today or a first year lawyer or even someone entering the industry in our development industry? Because we're so intertwined. And while lawyers obviously have, a, have a, a, an important role, there are so many people on this uh, call that are looking for a nugget and some knowledge. On yeah. That. Well, I've, looking back, I'm not sure that I changed my own advice to myself because I may not have paid attention to it. I've loved everything I've done and I've been so lucky. So what I would do to anyone who's starting out is to find what you love and become really good at it. Um, one of the things I was ruminating on the other day when Stephen and I were talking is how niched and expert lawyers particularly are becoming. And for example, there are questions in planning law or municipal law that people ask me and I say, you know what? I'm not on top of that the way Leo Longo is or Eileen is or Kim or you know any of my partners, Trish. So let me refer to you because there is a deep, deep expertise that is necessary today given the accretion of regulations and the, and the really obtuse pieces of legislation and uh, um, and policy. So I think I would say to anyone starting out, find what you love, become expert at it, but also to those who are in the industry, um, don't hesitate to pick up the phone and just ask somebody. Yeah, it'd be great if you retain us, but we're all open to just giving some advice, you know, and, and a little bit of guidance and direction. We're all in this together. So it really has to be a team. And you can count on different people in, in the team to provide different things at different times. That's fantastic. And I think we're going to end on that note because as we pride ourselves at ULI, always ending on time, the questions are amazing and they will all be answered. And we will certainly post those answers. I also love MOS post of Jane Pepino for mayor. So uh, <laughs> never know. But I think uh, I'm going to sort of close this out now for the last couple of minutes. And I really want to thank, uh, thank you both. Uh, we certainly apologize for not being able to answer all the questions to our audience, uh, but we will cover them. Once again, on behalf of ULA Toronto, I want to thank our special guests, Jane Pepino and Steve Zakem, for joining us on today's program. Um, it was really inspiring. And, and to, truly, every time I've had the opportunity to get together with Jane, to speak with Jane, certainly during these times over the phone, 
um, you learn something. And I think the whole purpose of the fireside chat is not necessarily just to think about the history, but the history brings us forward. And the knowledge that you have gleaned over your career, the experiences you've had, the struggles, the wins, the losses are exceptional. And I really want to thank you, Jane, for not just uh, today, but for really being involved. And I know every so often you call me after a board call and say, you know, I'm sorry, I don't think I participated that much, but you always added one or two incredible things for us all to think about. And it really has helped shape not just ULI Toronto, but just listening to the conversation today, you're shaping our industry and you're shaping the future of our industry. And I really want to thank you personally. I want to thank you on behalf of ULI Toronto. And uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to today's session. Um, I want to also welcome you all to continue to tune into these sessions. While we all thought when COVID hit us that we weren't going to be able to make it work. And I, my hat goes off to the entire uh, team at ULI Toronto for what they've managed to do. The organization, if you're not aware, is currently the lar second largest district council worldwide. We are very, very comfortable and, and continuing to push the envelope, but it's because of you, because of everyone who participates as a volunteer. It's from everyone who participates as a sponsor and certainly everyone who participates as a member. So please uh, join, please bring uh, your friends and just be a part of the dialogue. Um, there are a couple events up on the screen that will be coming, some really interesting events and very creative events uh, that you should definitely tune into. We are going to look forward to welcoming you again online. We certainly are going to look forward to welcoming you uh, when we can all see each other again. And hopefully this lockdown is going to come to an end soon and we'll all be able to see each other in, in great weather. So on behalf of ULI Toronto and on uh, behalf of the speakers, I want to thank you all, but I personally want to thank once again, Jane Papino and Steve Zakin for a wonderful discussion today. Thank uh, you, Bob, and thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. And we managed to end on time, which is a ULI tradition that uh, Les Klein, the former chair, managed to instill in us. So everybody gets a couple extra minutes to go about their day. So thank you all and have a wonderful afternoon.